You're listening to In Country, a podcast covering Marvel Comics, The Nom. In the year if man is still alive, if woman can survive, they may Hello and welcome to episode 54 of In Country, a podcast that is taking a complete look at the Marvel Comics series, The Nom, which is brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm your host, Tom Panneries. This time around, I'll be taking a look at issue number 47 of The Nom, as well as doing my very first special feature in the second half of the episode, as I've already covered the summer of 1969 in past episodes, and that's when issue 47 takes place. Our extra feature this time will be a quick look at two issues from another comic book from the 1980s, and that is issues number 26 and 27 of G.I. Joe, A Real American Hero. Since this takes place in the summer of 1969, I've used Zager and Evans in the year 2525 as our opening, as it was number one on the Billboard Hot 100 at the beginning of August 1969. The song is a pessimistic look at the future, a piece of dystopian science fiction that stayed on the top of the charts for six weeks in 1969. It was not only Zager and Evans' only hit, it was the only song of theirs that ever charted before they broke up in 1971. Our issue came out on June 26, 1990. It was cover dated August of 1990. The title is Brothers in Arms. Our creative team was as follows. Jacqueline Zambrano, writer. Wayne Van Zant, artist. Phil Felix, letterer and colorist. Don Daly, editor. Tom DeFalco, editor-in-chief. The cover, which is uncredited, shows a white soldier punching a black soldier while there are several rifles pointed at them and the caption reads, Can they kill each other before the NVA does? We open in summer of 1969 at Firebase Zelda, and those two men on the cover are already bickering at one another as the white guy, Rossi, tells a black soldier named Crandall to stop singing and playing his guitar, and does so by using the racist nickname of Sambo. Duke, who is the black guy on the cover, tells Rossi to pick on someone his own size. Their argument is interrupted by Biggs, who tells them that they are headed out because they have to back up a recon unit. On the way out, their helicopter crashes in the jungle, and they're caught in a huge amount of enemy fire. Once the firing stops, Biggs orders the men to rescue the wounded and get ammo off of the casualties. Crandall, who is inexperienced, comes upon the wounded helicopter pilot, who tells him to shoot him out of, the, out of mercy. Crandall can't and runs away. Duke hears it and tells Biggs that Crandall is missing. Biggs tells Duke that not to bother him and just take care of it. Duke grabs Rossi and they head into the jungle. They can't find him and Rossi says, looks like Sambo runs away. And then belabors the point to say that Crandall ain't no brother of his, which is when Duke snaps and the two of them have a fist fight in the middle of the jungle. Duke pulls a knife and he... Just as he goes at Rossi, NVA soldiers begin firing at both of them. They duck behind a fallen tree, grab their weapons, and start firing back. Just then, a grenade lands near them, and Duke is injured. Rossi gives him some gauze and tells Duke to put some pressure on it. The NVA approaches them, and Duke tells Rossi to run while he can. Rossi refuses to abandon him, and they begin firing back. Moments later, an airstrike takes care of the approaching NVA. Rossi says that they'll have to go back. Duke says he's not leaving without Crandall. Rossi says that he can't go into the bush with a bloody hand and volunteers to go instead. Someone finds Duke and brings him back to Biggs while Rossi finds Crandall in the jungle, nervously filling his canteen to the river. As Rossi approaches Crandall, he feels the barrel of an AK-47 in his back and an NVA soldier says, 
don't move. What you do now, G.I., G.I., you die. But Crandall puts his hand over the NVA soldier's mouth and grabs the gun. Rossi takes this as his cue and assaults the NVA officer. They head through the jungle and Crandall says he isn't going back because he's scared. Rossi says that's crazy and Crandall wonders why Rossi suddenly cares and Rossi says it's because they're all they have and he's even ready to bring Crandall back at gunpoint. But that's foiled by Crandall stepping on a punji stick. A short while later, Rossi begins carrying Crandall on his back, and at 0600, they finally rendezvous with Biggs and Duke. The medevac arrives, and later at the base, Duke, Crandall, and Rossi share a beer. This is the only comic book credit for Jacqueline Zambrano, who would go on to have a long career as a television writer, starting in 1989 with her first credit, the Star Trek The Next Generation episode, Loud as a Whisper. In fact, according to her IMDb profile, this issue is actually a reworking of a script that she wrote for the television show Tour of Duty that was never produced. It definitely has the feel of a fill-in, which it is, and that's mostly felt in the characterization of Biggs, who seems like he's not as even-keeled or understanding as Doug Murray developed him. Here he just seems like a pissed-off boss, and it's possible that since this was originally written for another project, that when she adapted it for the NOM, Sombrano tacked Biggs' name onto the lieutenant character that she'd used in her original script. The issue delivers on what its cover promises, as we see Duke and Rossi going at it almost exactly how they will in the issue. Van Zandt is doing both pencils and inks, and here they look great, and I will continue to say that I still like how consistent he has been ever since taking over the art duties on the title way back in issue 14. But the story... Well, since it's a fill-in and feels like a fill-in, doesn't seem like it's necessary to the overall arc of the NOM. Granted, we're at a point in the series where the overall arc of the NOM is unsure, because while Doug Murray is still writing about the guys in the 23rd, Chuck Dixon is building his own cast of characters, and we'll get the Punisher in about five issues. But unlike what Dixon was doing, Zambrano's issues is one that you could completely ignore, and it wouldn't matter. It's not to say it's a bad story. It's pretty tightly written, and Zambrano writes Rossi's racism very well by using insults that aren't as harsh as slurs that would definitely have not been could approve, but they're still effective. Sambo, Aunt Jemima are clear insults, and the reaction that both Crandall and Duke have at the beginning is very warranted. Then, the tension between them grows to the point where there is that fight in the jungle, and we have a scene where Rossi, Duke, and Crandall are finally able to put all the differences aside because of the fact that they're facing a much greater threat. I will say, it's a bit of a pat ending. Crandall and Rossi are eating lunch and complaining that the food is all the same color, which is puke orange, and Duke comes in with three beers and says, Have a brew, guys. I take care of my brothers. In other words, we're all on the same side, so we should set aside our differences. Not a bad message for a comic, but in a book that has been pretty deftly handling such issues for, for a few years now, it doesn't feel up to that standard. Normally, here is where I break for historical context letters and ads, but I don't have historical context. So I'm going to be breaking for in a few minutes for another feature. And there actually is no incoming this month, but I but I will take a look at the ads very, very briefly. On the inside cover, we have Fleer Football's Rookie Sensation. So there's all these Rookie of the Years for 1990, uh, including Bernie Kosar, quarterback for the Cleveland Browns, Thurman Thomas, running back for the Buffalo Bills. We've got 
people like Michael Irvin, Barry Sanders, John Machowski. So I think this is, a, they're saying a rookie sensation. I think this is their all new football card thing. Yeah, the the, the comic book um, boom and the playing card, uh, playing card, the collector's card boom happened right around the same time. So, uh, yeah, this is going to crash right around the same time, too. We have the same Wrath of the Black Manta ad where you can uh, play this ninja game for the Nintendo from Taito. We have Entertainment This Month, Captain America, with the release of the new movie, the 50th anniversary celebration, the new drug storyline, and the Stanley movie adaptation, Cap is hot. And you see a cover of the movie adaptation by Stanley and Brent Anderson. I've seen this movie. It's the Matt Salinger Captain America movie. It's not particularly great. Uh, it's worth a shot at seeing just for the sake of seeing it, but it's, it, it has its, yeah, it's, it's not particularly great. I, I had a, I had a comic once that said Captain America goes to war on drugs, but I don't know if that's the drug storyline they're talking about. So I can't, can't exactly speak to that. We've also got the Punisher, Central America's Washed in Blood is the Punisher visits a drug lord in Kingdom Come, all new 64 pages. Spider-Man, the uh, Spirits of the Earth hardcover. There's a RoboCop illustration at the bottom. And uh, Alien Nation, based on the popular TV show, Alien Nation number one should be very strong, especially the limited edition release. I'm seeing, uh, under Independence, I'm seeing Aliens vs. Predator number zero. That was the first zero issue I was ever uh, aware existed. Alright, uh, there's the Uncanny X-Men video game ad again. A lot of the same stuff still running. Ooh, Bonk's Adventure. This is a comic, so I'm going to read it. A long, long time ago, later than you think and sooner than you know, there was a strange and terrible kingdom. Help, Bonk, somebody save me. And this tree is saying, I wouldn't want to be in King Drool's shoes once Bonk bonks his way to him. Bonk, ha, that crude cave boy will never make his way here. I've seen it. You're mine, princess. You must be joking. Nothing can stop Bonk. She's not talking through her crown, either. Bricks and stones may break my bones, but not when I bonk him with my head. Wow, that's really using your head. Bonk. Whoa, I wasn't counting on you showing up. I'm counting the pay King Drool gave me to stop working stop you. I'm working for him now. This flower says, bonk over here. He goes over to this flower and like kisses her. He says, I don't have enough power for it yet for a head-on collision with you, but still when I pick this flower, and he's fighting this dragon here, and charge up with meat and other good things and go nuclear! Yike! The terrible T-Ractor head. It's one thing after another in this place. To bonk him, I'll need another flower power for twice the power. A Venus bonk trap! I'm stuck! Chomp. The prince is saying, I'm doomed unless you say bonk, so he can rescue me in the all-new TurboGrafx-16 Bonk's Adventure. My friend Chris had a TurboGrafx-16. I think that was the first time I ever played Madden, like one of the very, very early, early Madden. There is a Nickelodeon magazine ad, which looks like a... Is that a dinosaur or a unicorn riding a skateboard? Might be a unicorn. Interesting. 
this is I, I, this this looks like the type of thing that very similar to what I'd see like in the uh, in the uh, Scholastic Book Club when I was a kid. All right, uh, bullpen bulletins this month. There's a stand soapbox. So something about the bullpenners being in a movie called Into Thin Air, or maybe it's Ambulance. Um, it may or may not be called Ambulance. I'd have to look this up. Uh, and and he's uh, we'll never stop busting your chops to give you the best we got. You know, typical stand stuff. Um, let's see. Uh, it's National Dairy Month, as Mark Grunewald never fails to remind them. So there's a cow in the upper right-hand corner, and all around the border there's pictures of cows, milk. There's cows, there's cartons of milk, cheese, eggs, and ice cream. Todd McFarlane is putting together the adjective of the Spider-Man, uh, so that's coming out soon. Um, there will be a Fool Killer limited series um, by Steve Gerber with art by J.J. Birch, who I believe is also goes by Joe Brzezowski. I think that was his real name. Uh, he says we ex- there's another one. There's exit we exit New York Smile the New York Smiler and uh, let's see uh, there's all these cheese and milk puns. It's awful. RoboCop Two is out. It was co-written by um, Frank Miller. That movie's not particularly great. Uh, and then there's no checklist this month that says, guys and girls, if you want to find out what's on sale, check out last month's bulletin. Bulletin's pad. Here's some extra boxes you can practice checking off. It gives give it a check for good and X for bad, and there are literally are blank check boxes. There's an ad for Arachnophobia, a movie that I never saw. I don't know why I never saw that. They kept describing it as a horror comedy. Marvel Annuals, there are three. Uh, Spidey's Totally Tiny Adventure, which is going from Amazing Spider-Man number 24, The Spectacular Spider-Man Annual number 10, and Web of Spider-Man Annual number 6. There's a subscription ad with Spider-Man on it. The All Monsters Are Not Created Equal ad. And then If the World Ends Tomorrow, It's All Your Fault with Snake's Revenge and Super C. And that is issue 47. I'm going to take a quick break, plug a podcast, and when I get back, G.I. Joe, The Real American Hero, number 26 and 27, Snake Eyes, The Origin. Do you have unexplained mood swings? Do you have difficulty communicating with others? Do you exert a fishy odor? Do you experience undue aversion to flames or revulsion of bonfires? Have you suffered from long periods of amnesia or unexplained blackouts? Do you like to toot your own horn, speak of yourself in Shakespearean tones, or sound like Dean Warmer in Animal House? Are you a sociopath? Have you senselessly slaughtered innocent undersea creatures? Is your family tired of every vacation having to be to the beach or on a cruise ship? Do you have a secret collection of green fish scale speedos? Then you may identify with the subject of our new podcast, Imperious Rex, Confessions of a Serial Surface Invader. Longer than a whale, he can swim anywhere. He can breathe underwater and go flying through the air. The famer of Atlantis is the Prince of the Deep. Join us each week as we review the next installment from Prince Namor, The True Submariner's Adventures in Tales to Astonish, starting with the quest in issue 70 and moving forward through the Silver Age of Marvel Comics. Check out our blog at serialsurfaceinvaders.tumblr.com for a new show every two weeks or so and a steady stream of ridiculous aquatic content. 
And please, if any five or more of the above conditions apply to you, seek professional help. Yo, Joe! We'll fight for freedom wherever there's trouble. G.I. Joe is there. G.I. Joe! G.I. Joe is there! It's G.I. Joe against Cobra the enemy, fighting to save the day. He never gives up, he's always there, fighting for freedom over land and air. G.I. Joe! Joe is the code name for America's daring, highly trained special mission force. Its purpose, to defend human freedom against Cobra, a ruthless terrorist organization determined to rule the world. He never gives up, he'll stay till the fight's won. G.I. Joe will dare. G.I. Joe G.I. Joe. Joe. G.I. Joe, a real American hero, was the series created by Marvel, and published throughout the 1980s and early 1990s as a, tie, ha, as a tie into the Hasbro toy line of the same name. Much like its counterpart, Transformers, it features characters and vehicles that were on toy store shelves. It was often made to act like a commercial of sorts, much like the afternoon cartoon that ran in syndication for much of the decade. Larry Hama wrote the series, and while I don't have every issue or trade, I can definitely say that he did an outstanding job of incorporating the various toys into the series while giving it a sense of continuity and even a maturity that the cartoon didn't really have. Issues 26 and 27 are two of the best examples of this, as Hama uses the Vietnam War and other events afterwards as the basis for the origin of one of the most popular characters in the book, Snake Eyes. I'm not going to do a blow-by-blow synopsis here because there's quite a bit of story that involves Snake Eyes' training as a ninja by the Hard Master and the Soft Master, as well as his connection to Storm Shadow, who was introduced back in issue number 21, and whom he fights at the end of issue number 27. There's also a subplot involving Destro the Baroness and Zartan chasing some of the Joes through the Louisiana Bayou, which has a payoff in future issues. The military aspect of Snake Eyes' origin comes into play through stories told by Stalker, Hawk, and Scarlet as they detail why Snake Snake Eyes' face is always masked and why he never speaks. In issue number 26, which is penciled by Larry Hama and inked by Steve Lealoha, an art job that is outstanding and better than the pencils done by Frank Springer in issue number 27, Stalker tells Hawk and Scarlet how Snake Eyes' face came to be scarred. They were on a long-range recon patrol with another guy named Tommy. Six of us walked into that stinking valley, and three of us walked out. We had stumbled on a large force of regulars from the north, and they swatted us good. Charles had control of the high ground, so we decided to sneak out through the bottomland. I took the point with my suppressed Mike Mike 1-6. Tommy took the center. He was a Japanese-American kid out of Fresno. Unpronounceable last name. Everyone knew him as Tommy. Snake Eyes brought up the, t- the tail with his M60. Even back then, he was a mystery. Suddenly, Snake Eyes gives us the take cover sign, something behind us. He was alone, him and his brand new AK-47, but we knew his buddies couldn't be too far behind. He was a point man who wandered too far ahead. I was about to take him out when Tommy stopped me. He strung up that weird bow he always carried with him and let loose the steel-tipped arrow that went clean through that poor sinner like a hot knife through butter. Tommy reminded me that although a suppressor rifle stifles the discharge report of a rifle, there's nothing to silence the sonic boom of the bullet. 
We low-crawled through the rift to get clear of that valley and dug in by the tree line to wait for our pickup. Tommy was talking up a storm to Snake Eyes as usual. They'd been through a whole tour together and they were beaucoup tight. I'd seen them with six months and I was an outsider. Tommy was talking about his uncle's business in Japan, the family business. Tommy was going to join the firm after the war and he was hinting heavily that there was no that there was room in the business for his old pal. Snake Eyes hardly listened to him. He was always staring at his at a battered picture of his twin sister. It was his good luck charm. He really believed that nothing could happen to him as long as he kept that photo safe. The pickup Huey came in at high noon and we marked the LZ with red smoke. I was first on board with the camo gear and code books. Snake Eyes was covering from the tree line and everything seemed copacetic until the sky got filled with red tracer and Snake Eyes went down like a rag doll. The Huey was a sitting duck. I coerced Tommy to leave Snake Eyes. I was sure he was dead, but Tommy dropped his ruck and sprinted back through the crossfire. I had expected the Huey pilot to lift us out of there, then and there. Luckily for Tommy and Snake Eyes, I was wrong. The door gunner and the pilot started laying down cover fire while Tommy heaved Snake Eyes on his back and started dodging machine gun bullets like they were slow pigeons. There must have been two or three reinforced weapons platoons in the tree line and all had their sights zeroed in on Tommy. But Tommy didn't even get nicked, like he really could dodge bullets. I still don't believe it, but I saw it. Later, when we were safe and in the air, Tommy was bandaging Snake Eyes and tying the gauze in place with his wristbands. That's when I saw the tattoo. I just called the records division at Leonard Wood. Tommy's unpronounceable name, it translates directly into English as Storm Shadow. Hawk picks up the story later when Snake Eyes comes home from Vietnam to find out that his family isn't there. I guess it's my turn to pick up the thread of the story now. Just met him that one awful time. He was coming home. A lot of boys were coming home. There was no brass bands to meet them, no parades. Heck, nobody offered to buy them a cup of coffee. They didn't care. They were just glad to be home and rolling in the sweet, loving arms. They were there back in the world where the rain didn't stink and you never had to eat another lima bean again if you didn't want to. Back in the bosoms of their respective families to be loved or tortured or both, nobody came to meet Snake Eyes at the airport. Nobody except me, and I was a good four hours late. I was driving a desk in, headquarter, in a headquarters outfit when a message came through in the office that had to be dealt with quickly and tactfully. It took me two hours to drive to that airport, and I must have rehearsed what I was going to say a thousand times. But I really didn't have to say anything. He knew. He saw my uniform and the look in his, on him, my face, and he knew. Like he had already seen the whole horrible scene through his sister's eyes. Just before the car his family was riding in got smeared across the interstate by a stoned-out vet who'd come back from the Central Highlands with a funny look in his eye, and a morose disregard for highway safety. Finally, in issue 27, you have Scarlet, and she tells the story of why Snake Eyes doesn't speak. She asks, so you didn't see, she asks Hawk, you didn't see or hear from Snake Eyes for six years after you told him about his family in the airport, and she, he says, yeah, that's right, Scarlet. Stalker and I were put to, putting together the G.I. Joe team, and I convinced Hawk to look up Snake Eyes. He might have been out of uniform for a while, but he was still best. And they, they get Snake Eyes in training, and we finally get the incident that is that is going to happen. She says, months later, we were on a desert. There's this whole romance between them. And then months later, we were on a desert operation. It was supposed to be a simple hostage rescue. Yes, simple. Halfway around the world and in a hostile country with no support. 
There were four of us in the lead chopper, Rock and Roll, Grunt, Snake Eyes, and me. We were flying real low. The doors were open and the rotors were kicking up enough dust to resand the Sahara. Grunt was wondering if the planning honchos had thought to refit the helicopters with dust filters and the air intakes. That's about what our engine stalled out. The stick jockeys up front did their best to get us down intact, but it was pretty hopeless. They gave us the word to jump. Rock and Roll and Grunt were already out the door when the tail rotor stalled and started to spin. The spin slammed the door shut on my web gear, trapping me. Snake Eyes could have jumped clear. We were slewing toward the other helicopter, and I told him to leave me and get out, but he didn't. He was trying to get the door open when we hit the other chopper. The immigration gas lit up immediately, and a plume of burning vapor punched right through the plexiglass door window and hit Snake Eyes square in the face like a boxcar full of Roman candles. The crash knocked me out cold. Rock and Roll told me he later saw the Snake Eyes carry me out of the wreckage with his head still in flames. He was standing there holding me safe with his ruined mouth opening and closing in his ravaged face and no sound coming out. He spent six months in the hospital and all the best plastic surgeons tried every trick in the book, but there was nothing they could do to make Snake Eyes look human again. He could have gotten out then with complete disability, but where could he go? What could he do? He had nobody left except me. I bring these issues up for this show. Like I said, I'm leaving quite a bit out because there's a lot of the ninja stuff. There's a lot more background that, that's germane more to the G.I. Joe thing than Vietnam. But I bring it up for a couple of reasons. First, Larry Hama would go on to be the editor of Savage Tales and then the first editor of the Nam. Second, if I'm thinking back to my knowledge of the history of post-World War II America, this is probably one of the first places that I learned anything about the Vietnam War. Granted, it's not that much, and it only serves to advance the plot. But when I was 10 years old, I read these issues over and over and over again to the point where my copy of issue 26 had a wrinkled cover and a rolled spine, and my issue, copy of issue 27 wasn't much better. Hama injected some reality into this G.I. Joe story for a few pages that I don't think anyone would have really expected from a comic book based on a toy line. And honestly, while the NVA soldier getting an arrow through his neck is shown in shadow and from far away, that was pretty graphic for the time. And effective. Plus, you have this moment of Snake Eyes coming home to nobody because his entire family had been killed, including his sister, with whom he was obviously very close. It's incredibly sad. Again, really heavy for a comic that I bought because I wanted to see my favorite action figure and learn about his origin story. I honestly think that this was one of the first times that I read a comic book and realized that there was something deeper than the images on the page that looked cool or the really awesome Mike Zek cover. And that may sound silly, but at 10 years old, I wasn't digesting the social context of the Claremont X-Men. And while I bought the occasional Superman comic, I wasn't up on the changes in content, even up on the changes in continuity that had taken place since Crisis. Aside from the fact that I noticed that Superman had been renumbered. So it was kind of a revelation. And these two issues, along with the storyline that ran through 61 through 66, which was what I bought as it came out, as well as Craven's Last Hunt, which I also bought that summer, were me dipping my toes into a larger world. My first real step would come three years later with Batman Detective and buying back issues of Crisis on Infinite Earths, but that's a whole other story for a whole other podcast. Anyway, I mentioned that I always thought the second issue was weaker than the first because the art wasn't as good, and I probably didn't even need to bring up number 27 because it actually has nothing to do with Vietnam, and Scarlet mentions that it 
that it actually takes place a few years later. But if I'm placing the timeline correctly, Hama may be implying that Snake Eyes and the other Joes were the early Delta Force team that was involved with Operation Eagle Claw. That was a secret special forces operation on April 24, 1980, that was authorized by President Jimmy Carter as an attempt to rescue hostages that were being held in Iran at the time. Here's a quick recap. The former American embassy in Tehran. Iranians called it the spy nest, referring to the intelligence activities carried out on its premises. But it was also the target of a U.S. rescue mission in April 1980, Operation Eagle Claw. Initially meant to rescue 52 American diplomats and embassy staff who had been held hostage in the embassy since November 1979. 90 Delta Force commandos, 8 helicopters and 6 Hercules aircraft took part. The plan made complete sense on paper and during rehearsals, but the operation ended in disaster. It was very elaborate uh, and, and eventually, went nowhere, eventually went nowhere. But I did hear about, you know, I was, was, follow, was following it because at, at one point it looked like this was actually going to amount to something. Uh, I did learn about the, uh, the rescue mission in, um, in April. Uh, through a stolen, again, through a stolen newspaper. So what I could overhear, what they might let drop. The aircrafts landed in a deserted airport near the eastern Iranian city of Tabas. A blinding sandstorm then kicked up. One of the helicopters hit a fuel-carrying airplane and exploded. Iran says the operation was designed to solve the hostage crisis and pave the way for a coup against the newly installed government. Instead, it further complicated the crisis. The rescue attempt failed. That, mean, that meant to me, and I'm only sure to everyone else in the cell, that, that that meant that we were going to be here longer, much longer than we might have been. The hostage crisis lasted for 444 days with the hostages only being released in January 1981. I'm not saying that Hama put snake eyes in the helicopter that exploded, but it definitely feels like a reference, even though I would not have gotten that as a 10-year-old in 1987. I honestly don't have any memory of the hostage crisis because I was born in 1977. So by the time the hostage crisis was over, I was about three years old. But older people who had the proper context may have seen what Hamid did, and I have to say that with more knowledge of history and some hindsight, I appreciate what he did there. And even though I didn't talk about the ninja action in these two comics, this is some of the best, that's some of the best stuff of G.I. Joe as well. In fact, these are two of my favorite issues of all time of the G.I. Joe comic book. Now, before I go, I do have one email I want to cover. It's from Kirk Greenfield, who is the host of Imperious Rex, Confessions of a Surface Serial Invader, which is a Submariner podcast, and that's the promo I played earlier in the episode. He writes, I just listened to this short show just because it caught my attention. I do recall seeing this cover show up at, the, at my uh, LCS, but don't remember buying it or doing anything more than flipping through it. It was as expected. I enjoyed your review of it, and this was the only the second non-book I've heard reviewed in the podcast. Thank you, Professor Allen. It was nicely done. And thanks, Kirk. That email was from March 23rd of this year. I've got two more in the inbox that I'll tackle in the next two episodes. I hope you enjoyed the other episodes you listened to, and I hope that you enjoyed this slight change in format. I personally think it'll help me keep things fresh. I also 
have another comic story ready for next episode because there won't be much in the way of historical context for that one either. So come back in two weeks when I take a look at the NAM issue 48. Until then, thanks for listening and take care. You pick your son, pick your daughter too. From the bottom of a long glass You have been listening to In Country, a podcast that covers Marvel Comics' The Nom. The Nom and all of the comics associated with it are copyright Marvel Comics, and since this podcast is intended for entertainment purposes and I make no money off of it, no infringement is intended. Images, clips, and show notes can be found at Pop Culture Affidavit, which is located at popcultureaffidavit.com. Feedback can be sent by email to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. In Country also has a Facebook page, and you can like the podcast at facebook.com slash incountrypodcast. This podcast is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Network of Podcasts, which is a division of the Demanza Corps of Milan, Italy. You can download this podcast and many other great podcasts at twotruefreaks.com. Want to support this and the other Two True Freaks podcasts? Go to twotruefreaks.com and click the Amazon.com link. It costs you no extra money, but really helps us all out. Thank you for listening and come back in two weeks for the next chapter in the saga of The Nom. The twinkling of starlight so very far away Maybe it's only yesterday